Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Kevin Turner, and this is the Autosport Podcast. It's 60 years since one of the greatest Formula 1 teams of all time took its first victory in the 1961 United States Grand Prix when Innes Island took the Lotus 21 to victory. It was the first win for Team Lotus. Obviously, Lotus has already won four times thanks to Rob Walker run privateer cars with uh, certain Sterling Moss. But we like doing historical pieces and uh, this seemed a good excuse to talk about one of those uh, great F1 teams. And I'm very pleased to say that joining me is... Clive Chapman, son of Lotus founder Colin Chapman and boss of Classic Team Lotus, which hopefully we'll get on onto that uh, soon. So, Clive, welcome to the Autosport Podcast. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Kevin. Sitting amongst the cars at Classic Team Lotus and um, looking forward to having a bit of a chat. Yes, your background is much better than mine. It's a shame that the listeners can't see it because it's, fa- it's a fantastic place, Classic Team Lotus, I must say. I've had the pleasure of being up there and it is a brilliant place. So, I mean, actually, Clive, before we crack on, You've uh, not long back from from the Goodwood Revival, where that was a pretty good pretty good weekend. You had uh, Andy Muddlehurst taking his seventh Glover Trophy Glover Trophy win in R four, the Lotus Twenty Five. Jim Clark used, and of course Phil Keane winning in spectacular fashion the sports car race with the Lotus Thirty. So that must have been a good weekend. It was great. Yeah, unfortunately the um, the Sterling Moss um, eighteen um, had quite a bad misfire. Um, throughout. Um, Good was always a tricky place to find a misfire, um, but we got it back on the test track the week after up at Hethel. I think we've I think we've nailed that now, or certainly on the way. Um, but um, always nice for for the for the team in particular for the mechanics when um, when the cars win. And and actually, Lewis Cullington is mechanic on both cars, um, so he had he had two poles and two wins. So that was a special day for him. 
Yeah, you can't get much better than that, can you? That's uh, fantastic. Also, they were really great to watch, I must say. But um, oh, let's, let's, let's crack into the to the main part of it. I mean, just looking at, at uh, Lotus's record, um, just to remind people, seven constructors' titles, six drivers' titles, uh, 79 wins, if you include all the, all the wins as a constructor, which is still fifth in the all-time list. And looking at that list, only Red Bull are anywhere near. I think Red Bull will probably take fifth place over the next year or two. But after that, there's absolutely no one in range. So I think Lotus will be in that top six for many, many years to come. So, Clive, just give us perhaps a, a, you know, an insight into into Colin himself. Is um, obviously the driving force behind Lotus. Uh, what what well what drove him to form Lotus and get into Formula One and and really push the boundaries all the time? Well, he was clearly a um, a very clever man and driven, always wanting to achieve things. And um, it just turned out that cars um, were a way that he was making money to try and support his uh, education and and time at university. And then one thing led to another and he was left with an Austin 7 he couldn't sell and he decided to modify it. And it occurred to him that cars really offered an opportunity for his abilities to to shine. Um, And obviously he he enjoyed it. And there was lots of other people wanting to do the same kind of thing. And he became something of a magnet for lots of other clever people, not just in the early days, but throughout, quite frankly. He, he always managed to attract and, and work with a lot of very clever people. Um, and, and together, he, he enabled them to achieve. You know, lots of people have good ideas, but Dad was really very strong at realizing those ideas, even if resources were non-existent um, and the challenge was massive and there was no time and despite the circumstances he would get the job done and enable others to, to realize their potential motorsport in particular was was the field in which those those attributes that he had paid dividends more than than anywhere else actually that's a really underrated point about him isn't it i mean lots of people know him as arguably the greatest innovator in in uh, f1 history but actually to facilitate others and to attract the talent i mean that's what people say about enzo ferrari but obviously colin had that as well you wouldn't be able to be successful for that long a period and of course he was really in the vanguard of british constructors because obviously he was involved briefly with the van wall project which is the first british uh, team to win the constructors championship before then i guess joining cooper in the in the rear engine revolution and it really took off in the in the 1960s what do you think was the final ingredient that kind of triggered the sort of the success that, that he had in the 60s? Well, I guess it started to become slightly less unsophisticated, if you like, and the business footing became stronger. It wasn't such a traumatic challenge. Um, you know, he started to have facilities and started to have more people to work with. Also, the category at the time went to one and a half litres, so very lightweight, low power, and, and that absolutely, whether he managed to... <laughs> somehow persuade the rule makers to come up with one and a half leases i don't know but it absolutely played square into his his strongest suit the type 25 as a result um was was super dominant really elegant won eight out of ten races in in the championship finished 
as Bob Dance likes to remind everybody, um, Jimmy finished all 10 races in, in 1963. So um, anyone who calls a Lotus unreliable in the company of Mr. Dance uh, gets short shrift. Interesting point about the 1500cc formula because there's an awful lot of correspondence um, in all sort magazine and motorsport at the time about how the British constructors weren't happy of the switch from two and a half litres to 1500 uh, and it was going to play into the hands of Ferrari and Porsche and of course it only really did for one year because by 1962 Lotus had the 25, BRM had finally got its act together and Ferrari didn't get a look in. It did switch over pretty quickly once they once they got a decent uh, engine, the Climax V8 in there. But I mean I don't think we can talk about the early days of Lotus uh, and, and Colin Chapman without talking about the special relationship that he had uh, with Jim Clark kind of the first great driver associated um, with Lotus. So how, how important do you think that Clark was to those early days of Lotus and, and to Colin uh, in, in particular? Well, yes, you're quite right to, to have highlighted that because that journey to the Type 25 and the preceding years was when, when Jimmy came on board. You know, I said at the beginning that Dad worked with a lot of clever people, but he also managed to end up working with, with the greatest driver and someone who, who was sympathetic to the machinery, extremely quick, a, a really positive force for the team, for the mechanics. Also, someone just gelled with, with my father, and it, it, was, it was more than a working relationship. It really was a, a, a special friendship. Um, so, you know, the Type 25 was utterly dominant, but, but Jimmy's teammates, um, able though they were, um, you know, didn't, didn't win a race um, a Grand Prix um, so so clearly um, you know Jimmy was a was a vital element and of course in those days both the drivers and constructors championship it was it was a drop scores rule you only really needed the one car so providing that, that Jim was delivering and getting those wins which he did in 1963 and 65 you would win both championships. You probably would need a slightly different approach now, I guess, but um, it was certainly very successful at the time. I'm, I'm interested, obviously, Lotus went on to win the championship, um, obviously with Graham Hill in 1968, Jochenry and Emerson Fittipaldi and Mario Andretti. Um, who, do you think any of those other drivers got close to being being having that relationship with Colin, I know Jochen Rint and Colin sort of didn't see eye to eye and everything. It was quite a combative sort of relationship, if successful. But do you think any of the other drivers perhaps got into the Clark zone, as it were? Bob Dance tells a nice story. Watkins Glen, 1968, when Mario was in the 49 for the first time. Also first time at Watkins Glen. And um, Mario um, said to Colin, and, and Bob heard him say it, Colin, just tell me when you want me to put her on pole. And he promptly did that. And uh, afterwards, my father said to Bob, it's like having Jimmy back again. It was euphoric when he said it. Of course, you know, of course, it could never be the same. But um, I think I think Mario was a significant figure, particularly when it came to ground effects, because um, that was that was quite a technical um, period. I mean, it it was, wasn't quite as straightforward as slapping on some side pods and, and, and going out to win. You know, it really did need quite a lot of development and, and sophisticated development which Mario played an important part in. Dad and Emerson had a, had a really um, strong relationship as well. The 72, again, a really technically challenging car. Um, the results went up and down over a six-year period, and it had a lot to do with, with Emerson working together with Dad and, and Martin Wade and, and the other engineers to realize the potential as, as things um, kind of ebbed and flowed to some extent. It was a warm relationship with Emerson and, and Mario um, and away from the circuit 
you know, they, they, they just enjoyed each other's company and, and had a great time. And I'm not sure how much of that actually happens in, in Formula One these days. Yeah, I think it probably depends on the team. I think that McLaren perhaps have a little bit of that now since they've reinvented themselves. But yes, generally, I think it's harder probably to have that sort of relationship. Good point about Mario, though, because a lot of people, as, although I'm I'm a fan, as many are, of Ronnie Peterson, a lot of people sort of, I think, downplay Mario's title success in 1978 with the Lotus 79, which is a little bit unfair given the part he played in, in Lotus's comeback, if you think of where it was in, in 75, 76 um, so I always think Mario earned that title, if that's a fair fair way of putting it. Yeah, definitely a vital role. Should say that Ronnie probably, in my in in my experience, was the mechanics favourite. You know, if the Team Lotus mechanics over the years had to nominate someone, Ronnie would be on a lot of people's lists because he would go and get a performance out of the car even when it wasn't there um, and, and just such a nice man and got on so well with Mario. Um, and um, despite his his uh, his ability to throw the car off the road now and again, um, in particular two cars in warm up for the uh, I think 1973 Belgian Grand Prix at Zolder, everybody forgave him everything and, and absolutely loved him. Yeah, he's um, uh, he's one of those people that no one has a, a bad word to say about, really, isn't he? I think, and uh, actually the fastest he was the fast the, the Ronnie Peterson and the low 70, the fastest combination in 1973. But as you say. Um, a few mistakes, a few problems here and there, and probably, unfortunately, it coincided with one of the great campaigns by Jackie Stewart, who just by then was totally on top of his game and just picked up every every point going basically. So Lotus won the constructors' championship, but Jackie won the drivers' title, which is which is probably fair given how the how the season played out. Um, but I wanted to look at perhaps a little bit more about the the approach, and um, obviously you've already mentioned um, about the re- reliability perhaps wasn't as bad at times as, as, as history records, but there also were titles and races that slipped away uh, because of, of problems here and there. I mean, you could make a case for Clark could have been champion in 62, 63, 64, 65 and 67. So, doing fu- And actually, I think maybe that's a, a function of the time. You know, now with the, the money and facilities involved, he probably would have won those five titles in six years. Um, but do you think that that was the downside, if you like, of always being innovative and looking for the next big thing? Was that the, was that the price that Lotus had to pay? Or do you think that that came from other other places? I think reliability was such a huge element in all of the team's fortunes and, and that ca- carried on through into the 70s. You know, no one really knew who was going to win which race um, because so many things could go wrong um, and, and running at the end was, was paramount. You know, regularly less than half the field were finishing. Um, and um, it was really just... Um, Particularly with the engine situation in the, in the 60s, you were really having to push as hard as you could um, on, on, on the power front. Um, and then even when we got the DFV, you know, in 67, um, you know, in theory, on paper, we should have walked it, um, as, you, as, as you say. But, um, you know, reliability was, was, was the fundamentally key issue. Absolutely. And actually, um, to sort of back that up, I had the good fortune of interviewing 
John Surtees uh, a couple of times and a couple of things he said. One was everyone says that Jim was unlucky in 1964 because of the way that obviously he had reliability at the end of the year. He said, but I had all my problems at the start. Nobody could string a season together. It wasn't just Lotus, it was Ferrari as well. And he also said that if you could get through a whole Formula One season with the car working perfectly from start to finish in two races, you'd consider it a good year. So I think that perhaps shows that it was a it was a period situation as much as it was Lotus. Although I guess you would say Colin was very hot on the the lightweight element, which I know sometimes perhaps frustrated the odd driver here and there. And the the sort of it needs to get to the end and no further. But yeah, certainly a period a period issue, I think. But also, you know, that, that was still the same in the 70s and even the 80s. I mean, you look at Formula One in the 80s, it was pretty basic. And um, most of the teams, because they're always going to the limit and, and maybe a little bit beyond it, especially in terms of resources, um, everybody is trying flat out all the time. Um, and um, you look at a, at, a, at a Formula One pit lane in the 80s and the garages, <laughs> it's pretty basic stuff. People working off the floor and, and hardly any equipment. And um, yeah, it was a different game. Absolutely. Well, we'll come back to some of the, the, the great cars in a minute, but I just want to look at perhaps um, the team into the 80s. So first of all, what do you think uh, Colin would have made of the developments in F1 during the 1980s? And secondly, could you perhaps explain how the team was able to come sort of out of, a, I guess, a, a dark period, come through the loss of, of Colin in 1982 and get back to winning ways? That must have been quite a tumultuous time for, for Lotus. Well, obviously, my father was was um, uh, the essence of, of Lotus. And um, first of all, it was it was up to my mother to decide what she was going to do, whether she was going to carry on the team or not. Um, the car company was, was really in a difficult situation and to secure a future for it, um, new owners had to be found. And um, happily, that, that worked out. Um, whereas Team Lotus, it was felt that with dad's teammates, especially um, Fred Bushell and, and Peter War, there, there was real potential for the team to continue. And mum, having made that decision, really relied on, on, on Peter and, and Fred to take it forward. Um, to their credit, Nigel and Elio decided to stay with the team, um, nearly all of the mechanics. And... Um, Peter Ward did a fantastic job of getting Gerard on board at a, at a crucial time when um, the 93T hadn't really worked out. Um, the team as a whole did an incredible job with the 94T, creating that in just seven weeks and, and having a vital positive result at the British Grand Prix in 83 and persuading players, the sponsor, who, who was vital, um, to carry on. And, um, and, and that really... So you're saying the kind of the, the tumultuous period, it was, it was that 12 months after, after Dad died that people were really sticking their necks out and, and um, laying the foundations for, for the team to then build on that. Um, Peter War managing to sign up Ayrton at a time when there was plenty of other people trying to sign up Ayrton. You didn't have to be a genius to, to see just um, what his potential was. Um, and then getting back to, to winning a Grand Prix um, just um, uh, three years after after Dad died, you know, which which was a fantastic achievement. Um, and um, you know, being wasn't just one lucky win; 
um, becoming championship challengers. And then active suspension again, which, which dad had initiated um, before he died. But then with the 99T, you know, winning at Monaco with Ayrton, with active suspension, with camel sponsorship. I think that was a critical moment where really the team had batted well above its its strength and, and, and achieved, made an ex- realised an extraordinary achievement. But sadly, we missed the boat there. That was the opportunity to take the team onto the next level. And it may well have been the family's lack of um, courage, if you like. Um, it needed another big gamble, you know, a, a real step off off the edge, if you like, um, which was exactly the kind of thing that my father would always do every day of the week. Um, but for us, it was, you know, we're, we're betting the farm here. Um, and um, I think I think probably you know post Monaco that's when we should have gone into uh, gone into the sponsors and and really sold them the plan for the future. And um, sadly that didn't happen, and, and um, you know a decline um, commenced. Yeah, I certainly think that if you think of what Colin did with say Cosworth and Ford to put that deal together to get the DFV through and really be a driving force to make that happen, it's hard not to imagine him doing something similar with active suspension and then Lotus would have had it in 1988 and the Honda engine would they have kept hold of it and probably not I guess at that point so you'd have you'd have lost that uh, element but would have been four or five years ahead of Williams of course eventually made active suspension you know really work really work for them but um, but I guess it was great for the team to have those three years of winning again being in a championship fight mm. um, kind of to really prove that it wasn't just Colin that they could do yeah. it as well. Yeah, fantastic achievement. Regular listeners will will know that um, I quite often have a top 10 that I have to then defend to whoever I'm speaking to. But um, funnily enough, at this time, we've got a much more interesting list because Clive has done his own top 10 uh, Formula 1 Lotuses. Hang on, um, I'd much rather go through your top 10 and snipe at it. Well, we can do that as well. We can do that. Well, let's go through yours because I think yours is interesting and I can always, um, we can do a comparison at, at the end. But yes, I'm quite happy to be sniped at. I'm I'm used to that with my top tens. I never get it right, so there we go. So um, we'll we'll just we'll just run through run through yours, um, uh, Clive. We'll do it in reverse order because that's always a bit more fun. So uh, at number ten, in fact, is the 99T, uh, which we were just talking about, the first active suspension Formula One car to win a race, a couple of wins with Ayrton Senna. Um, I mean, have you got anything to add other than what you've just said there? Well, I think it's the only active suspension car to win a race because, as Peter Wright will always tell tell you, the the other systems were reactive. Um, so um, <laughs> there is a bit of a debate to be had about that one. Um, but um, it's actually it's a shame we're not on video because the the car's sitting right next to me here. We're embarked on a really interesting project to to reverse engineer a running Honda turbo engine um, together with a um, a, a collector in, in Europe who um, also wants an engine. Um, so we're really hoping that um, maybe in a year or two, we might be able to, it would be Chris Dinage, team manager at Classic Team Lotus, was, was Ayrton's mechanic back in the day on that car. And it would be fantastic to see Chris driving that car around Monte Carlo, fully active, Honda Turbo. So that's a little bit, um, that, that, that's a project ongoing. That's fantastic. Well, we have to get a video up there at some point when uh, when that's and Chris has driven a lot of the cars, hasn't he? I think Chris is unique. No one will ever drive as many Lotus Formula One cars as as he will, um, you know, by long chalk. And um, we're we're still um, one or two of the cars we we never thought we'd, we would restore, like the fifty six B, 
um, Emerson's F1 tur- turbine car we got running this year. Chris actually hasn't managed to drive it yet. He's been too busy. Um, but we're looking forward to strapping him into that, which leaves, I think, four cars, um, which he had four F1 types, which he hasn't driven yet, one of which is a 99. Um, can't remember off the top of my head, but I think maybe a 93, and I'm not sure what the other one is. But, um, yeah, that's the plan. He's going to get – he will be the only man ever to drive one of every Lotus F1 type. So, so we should really get his top ten as well, shouldn't we? If he's <laughs> yeah, I did think that, that I ought to uh, – get him involved but that would be nice for another Ooh. another one yeah yeah when he's perhaps when he's driven them all that'd be a great great piece yeah, top 10 formula one lotus formula one cars to actually work on yeah um, yeah. Uh, yeah that would be a completely different list it would um now you've just mentioned the number nine on list and this is one of the ones i find most intriguing because if if you're looking at the record books the Lotus 56B, the four-wheel drive gas turbine car, wasn't uh, a success. And actually, when we did the Lotus 72 special last year, um, I think it was even mentioned as a distraction from 1971 when the 72 was still not working on the Firestone. So why have you selected a uh, fascinating car, but why, why have you put that in your list? Well, I guess my top 10 is as much to do with telling the Lotus story um, uh, from 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 a technical point of view, um, as much as it is from a performance and success point of view, um, but even so, I think um, the '56 first round at Indianapolis in '68, and that was pretty much ten years after the the, the Type 12. Um, the Type 12 was a traditional cigar-shaped space frame, front engine, elbows hanging out the cockpit, driver sitting up in the in the breeze. Um, you know, traditional racing car. Ten years later, Graham Hill was driving four-wheel drive, wedge-shape, gas turbine-powered monster around Indianapolis. Same driver, ten years apart, and it's just a perfect example of the extraordinary speed of development um, of motorsport and Team Lotus in particular. So for me, um, the 56B, the Formula One version of, of the original IndyCar, you know, represents a perfect example of what can be achieved by a small group of people at the same time as running a car company. And um, it wasn't just motorsport, you know, it was making Lotus Alans and Plus Twos and moving on to Cortinas and Europas. There was so much going on. Um, and at the same time, um, the team elected to um, take this extreme technical step so i take your point that it was something of a distraction um but what a distraction and um we're just so pleased to have the car and and to have it running and emerson drove the car again at goodwood this year at the festival of speed 50 years on um fantastic moment well yes i mean you've made a very a very good case for uh, for it being in your in your 10 there um and and your next one um is another car that's in both our lists uh, and I guess it's it's very historically important as well. Although the the Lotus 16 has, sub, has subsequently proved its its potential in historic racing, it's the Lotus 18, the first uh, mid-engined Grand Prix Lotus that actually got Lotus off the mark as a as a constructor in Formula One. So I, I guess that's a very key car um, uh, for the history of the company. Yeah, and again, it shows. Um, you, you mentioned the 16, which was Dad's take on the ultimate um, front-engine car. Um, 
particularly having developing from from the van wall consultancy work which which my father did um and he he re really was still wedded to, to the front-engined approach but then the cooper came out and it didn't take my father long to to look over the fence and go oh okay yeah well maybe that is a better way of doing it and he was always pragmatic my father um at the same time, he, he, he was always completely determined to get his own way. Um, and he would jump up and down and scream and holler and, and, and what have you um, for, for his principles um, till the cows came home, until such time as he realized maybe there was a better way of doing it, at which point he would do a complete vault fast and um, people would go, well, how, what the hell happened there? Um, and um, that's really what happened with the 18. And... Um, Having realized that that was the way to go, he, he took a look at what Cooper had done um, and did his take on it, which was um, basically lighter um, and um, better performing and beat Cooper at their own game. So, um, as you say, it was um, the first um, win as a constructor um, and um, really was an important step um, towards um, greater success. And of course it encouraged or forced perhaps would be the word Cooper to come up with the T53 low line car which was much better than the T51 which had been blown off on in pace terms by the Lotus 18. I always think that Lotus 18 is a little bit unfortunate in that I suspect had Sterling Moss not had his accident at Spa uh, in 1960 uh, which is a terrible weekend for a number of reasons but had he not had that accident and missed some races, that he would have been able to run Jack Brabham a lot closer for the World Championship. Because uh, I think Moss in the Lotus 18 was probably probably quicker than, than Jack Brabham in the T53, but uh, he didn't do enough rounds. But I guess motorsport is full of what-ifs. So you mentioned the, the next one on your list. Um, number seven is the Lotus 12, the very first uh, Grand Prix Lotus. It actually started life, I think, as an F2 car. Uh, and actually, even when it was in F1, it, it never had a, uh, the biggest engine possible, did it? In terms of the, the reg regulations were two and a half litres and it had two and then 2.2. So it's always given away a bit of uh, capacity. And I guess its its big moment almost came at the Belgian Grand Prix when the three cars ahead of Cliff Allison basically all fell to pieces as they crossed the line. <laughs> had it been a lap longer, he probably would have won. But um, but yeah, so why have you put the, the Lotus 12 in your list? Uh, yeah, I mean that, that was a big what if and, and and a big moment, but it still came forth. Um, I think in, that was the second Grand Prix, um, the first Grand Prix having been Monaco, and uh, that's just ten years after Dad modified that Austin Seven and and drove Mum to uh, was this St Albans for a day out. Um, got a lovely photo of that. You know, simple plywood wood panels and um, just so so basic, but still innovative. Ten years later, he's turning up at Monte Carlo with um, a space frame chassis car, um, the chassis weighing 17 kilos. When we restored the prototype 12 um, for the collection, yeah, we were amazed at that. Um, frontal area could not be any smaller. Um, wobbly web wheels, um, coolant through chassis tubes, uh, sequential Lotus design sequential gearbox. So many um, innovations packed into the tiniest possible space. Again, for a 
company in the very earliest stages with, with no resources. Um, and then um, to take it to Monaco and probably a three-hour race back then, I guess, certainly more than two hours anyway, um, with more gear changes um, than any other race. And uh, Cliff Allison brings it home in sixth place. So that really is um, a monumental achievement, I think. Um, which really, if you were listing achievements as opposed to cars, you could almost say that might be top of the pile. Um, so the 12 represents so many Team Lotus design principles and, and acts as a monument to the effort um, and achievement of, of the very few people that were in the team back then. Um, Plus, there's a really great show, um, shot of Dad sitting in the car when, when it was unveiled in Grandad Stan Chapman's pub in towards the end of 56, I think it was. Um, 28 years old, looking really pleased with himself, and, and so he should, because um, I bet when people saw it, it went to the motor show and uh, must have stolen the show, I think. The thing I love about the 12, just to follow on from what you're saying, is that quite often if you get a new team or constructor coming into Formula 1, you think, well, it's the first one, we'll play ourselves in, do something conservative and derivative of what's already out there. Colin, nope, I'm, all these new ideas I'm going to throw at the first project, so we'll learn everything as we go along. I think I think you're right, that really sort of sums up the, the what was to come, really, that kind of attitude of always looking for the next thing. Um, so we're going to the, the other end of the of the sort of the Lotus F1 history almost with your your number six choice, which is the ninety seven T, which I guess is the it's the first Senna car, lots and lots of well the fastest qualifying car of nineteen eighty five, and of course scored scored two wins, the first ones for three years for the for the team, and of course I suppose forever entwined with what I think is probably Senna's greatest race victory at the 1985 Portuguese Grand Prix. So, yeah, I guess uh, lots of reasons to put this on the list. Yeah, and, and I think um, I mentioned with the 12 it acting as a monument to, to the achievement of the team. Certainly that's that's why the 97T is in there um, at number six, um, getting back to the winner's circle. Um, very much the team that worked together with my father, all still together. Um, my mother effectively as, as, as team principal, um, and um, yeah, Ayrton nom- certainly Ayrton himself nominated it as his greatest ever race. Um, I think he said his best ever lap was was Donington in, in the wet. I think he won by a lap. Maybe didn't lap. Yeah, I think it was a minute cl- a minute clear of. Was it Alberetto in second? I think there's only one car on the same lap. Right, okay, um, yeah. And, of course, also Elio, of course, Elio D'Angeli has also won a race in that car. So during that Senna era, that's the, only, that's the only car where his teammate also won a race, which I always think it's a, it's a good sign if more than one driver can win in the car. So Absolutely. Um, yeah, Elio ran out and close and, and at one point was, was more of a challenger for the championship than Ayrton was, um, which, which was a great achievement um, by my favourite Lotus driver. Um, so, so another good reason to pick the 97T. Um, plus, we have it in the collection. Funnily enough, we're about to fire it up this morning because um, we we do start it every six months or so, um, just to make sure everything's ticking over. Um, and whenever we do start it and 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 send that noise out into Hethelwood, a real privilege. And that is actually the Portuguese Grand Prix winning chassis, isn't it? Yeah, chassis two. It's got the correct spec engine, um, EF4 spec engine, which which was used in the race, um, which Renault Sport has helped us with. And um, yeah, we've, we've had um, Bruno Senna driving the car, uh, Martin Donnelly, 
uh, Rubens Barrichello. Um, not many, um, but whenever they have, um, they've, they've always, um, yeah, you, you, you can tell it registers with them more, more than any other car, I think. I'm sure it, I'm sure it does, yes. Now, from a, from a race winner to a, to a car that didn't actually sort of start a race in the end, um, but perhaps one of the most fascinating cars in Lotus history, uh, number five is the Lotus 88 twin chassis car. So you, you've got to tell us how a, how a non-winner or even a non-racer, I think I know what you're going to say, but what, why is this car so high up your list? Incredibly important to my father. Um, to him, it represented everything that, that, that Lotus was about and what he felt motorsport should be about, which was innovation and free thinking, a uh, minimum of, of regulations and rules. But it did coincide with Formula One becoming more political, um, mainly because Formula One was becoming more about money. Um, and my father had driven that as much as anybody had because the more money he got, then the more money he could spend on the cars. So, you know, he, he was the first one um, to lead the, the arms race in terms of money, which, which led to the politics. Um, but it's the first composite monocoque in F1. Um, it, it took to the track um, a few weeks before um, the McLaren. Went to the first Grand Prix, did take to the track, but was not allowed to qualify. Um, and, and that really kicked off a, um, a debate which, which was intense for a, a few weeks and then dragged on for a few months. We've got a pile of paper about, about four foot high um, of, of the legal documents and arguments that surrounded um, the, um, the, the most controversial aspect, of course, which was the twin chassis. Uh, so at the same time as coming up with the first composite monocoque, um, the team had decided that twin chassis was the way to exploit the most out of ground effect. The FIA got wind of it and banned skirts, which inadvertently actually played into the hands of the twin chassis concept even more. Um, it increased the potential advantage um, over, over uh, more normal designs. Well, I could just drag on and on about it. But then we had another crack at it at the British Grand Prix, the 88B, um, with, a, with a slightly modified car, past scrutineering, and uh, it was all looking good. Um, then the FIA really weighed in hard on the RAC, and um, in the end they rolled over and the car was banned. And uh, I remember my father shouting to the mechanics, lads, lads, hang on, I want them all lined up in the pit lane for a photo, because he knew that, that was the last time 388s were ever going to be seen, the, the first and last time. Um, and then, then the mechanics fell, fell on the cars and converted one of them back to 87 spec overnight. Um, but um, an, an extraordinary story and a sad chapter, really, because I think it was, it was part of the stress of that. Um, not, not blaming anybody, but not, clearly my father um, died young and that was kind of one of the, you know, things which which weighed him down poignant and and um, controversial but now when you look at it it's an extraordinary machine um, and, it, and it's a lovely car to run whenever we get the chance
Absolutely. I think um, perhaps there's a separate podcast or piece on that on that whole saga and car. I mean, I, it does seem a little harsh given that some of the cars in that period were pretty... I mean, you had water, water-cooled water brakes, which weren't water-cooled, and just dropped bags off. And you had Brabham with its knob that just changed the ride height, which were all quite crude ways around the rules. And something nice and sophisticated and clever comes along, and that's the thing that gets banned. But there we go, I suppose. Um, but h- how much potential do you think it had? Do you think it could have been a, a, a dominator? in the time well with some development maybe you know the, I, I think that's why the other teams really wanted to see it banned because um having a knob in the cockpit to, to lower the ride height you know is kind of 50 quid but um to make a twin chassis car that's pretty fundamental so you've got to basically throw your existing cars away and, and start again so i don't think anyone was very keen on the idea so we have used it in historic motorsport um but it hasn't really offered much of an advantage i have to say but as I, I think that's because it never really got developed. It's a little bit like the Lotus 16 in that respect. Um, happily, we ran it at the Goodwood Festival of Speed with Dan Collins, um, the longest-standing Classic Team Lotus customer, and um, one of the longest-standing Classic Team Lotus customers. I mustn't forget Hawkeen. And um, he, he managed to win the win the shootout, which was just fantastic. Um, so uh, it didn't ever win a Grand Prix, but it did manage to win the, the Festival of Speed shootout. So we got a little wind sticker um, added to, to the rear spoiler, and um, we're, we're, we're proud of that. Very good, very good. Well, I mean, that's the car from sort of towards the end of, of Ground Effects before it was eventually banned altogether. Um, and your next car on your list, number four, is the, is the kind of car that made ground effects happen the the lotus 78 which i think people forget should have won the 1977 world championship in the hands of mario andretti had had uh, the team not been the victim of development dfvs going bang rather too often so this is an unreliability factor that wasn't anything to do with lotus i don't think really more about uh, misfortune with the engine so yeah why have you why have you chosen the 78 um well the 78 was was the result of um a long program of, of development which which kicked off with my father spending one summer holiday um lying on the roof of a, of a villa in spain um pondering for hours and hours um and then in the evening writing up his 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 notes um about the the design direction that the team should take post lotus 72 um which had carried the team for an extraordinary six years at a time when the car company was demanding um, a huge amount of, of dad's time and attention um, and, and the company's resources. And I think he realized, um, together with, with Tony Rudd, that it was time to go back to basics, start with a clean sheet of, sheet of paper, um, and um, really undertake a um, research and development program to find out which way to go forward. Um, Peter Wright was part of that program, having worked with Tony Rudd at BRM. And um, team realized the, the potential and importance of the wind tunnel in particular. And as part of that, Peter took up his idea that he had had at BRM originally, I believe, of aerodynamic side pods being used as wings, but then almost by accident in the wind tunnel, um, not the wing profile, but the Venturi profile under the car, um, between the, the underside of the car and, and, and the track, um, was realized as, as, as being the, um, the holy grail of um, aerodynamics in as much as it gave a lot of downforce for, for very little drag. So this 
really elegant solution was first realized with the Lotus 78, which was, I suppose, a little bit like, like the 49 in a way. It was, you know, the 49 was always going to be a big step. So keep it simple um, and, th and then we'll, you know, sort things out further down the road. Well, by keeping it simple, they happen to come up with, with an excellent design. Um, and that's the same thing which happened with the 78, really. It was, right, let's explore this new avenue, this new direction, which no one knew if it was going to work or not. Um, but let's come up with a, with a car that's relatively straightforward and strong. Um, and um, then we can develop the aerodynamics around it. Now, it just so happened that they got it right first time. Um, and then it also turned out that the key to its performance was the skirts. So that was the development aspect of the car which um, they could undertake without changing much of the rest of the car if you like to the point where the the, the type 78 um, became a really dominant car could have won the world championship in in uh, 77 uh, and and before we we move on to the other top three I, the, one of the big differences between our lists is that the the successor to the 78 the 79 doesn't appear in your in your 10, um, which I, I, I was surprised about. And 79 and 78, I've kind of got together in mine. Um, and I, I always think of one of Lotus's finest moments is the Belgian Grand Prix in 1978 when Colin wheels out the Lotus 79 for Mario Andretti, who wins, disappears down the road. And Ronnie Peterson charges through to second in the 78. So it's a bit like Lotus saying, our old car can beat you all, and here's a new car that's even faster. I think that must have been, that's got to have been one of Colin's most satisfying moments, I would have thought. But uh, yeah, so why have, you, why have you not put the 79 in? Is it just because you see the 78 as the real game changer there? Uh, yeah, I think so. And, and if, if we have the 78 and the 79, then, then the 99T falls off the list. And I, and I think that's <laughs> a shame. Um, and, and the 78 and 79 really were stable mates. Um, frankly, the chassis of the 79 wasn't that great. I just feel the 78 represents the, the big step. Almost a, a 79 is a, is a developed 78. And we have a 79 in the collection and, um, and a 78. And, yeah, we're not going to give either of them away. <laughs> so uh, we've got to hang on to both of them. Well, I must admit, I might be slightly biased because um, uh, we did the, you know, thanks to you, Clive, we had that fantastic day with four of your cars um, at the Hethel Test Track with Ben Anderson doing a track test for us. And obviously the Lotus 79 was the most recent car. And I have to say, in the flesh, it is absolutely fantastic, wonderful to just be around it, even when it's not moving. So uh, uh, I must admit, on that day, the uh, Lotus 79 went up I mean, it was already very high in my estimation, but it went up even further. But of course, you're surrounded by all these wonderful cars all the time, so uh, perhaps uh, perhaps it doesn't have quite the same impact after to day, day after day. No, that's true. It is the day job, you know. All of us at Classic Team Lotus, um, that's that's how we earn our living, and it's nice when we have visitors come to the um, the workshop because um, just reminds you um, that that walking up the stairs and seeing thirty. Lotus F1 cars all together on the mezzanine is is, is quite uh, quite impressive, whereas for us when we walk up here it's it's a bloody great big job list. So <laughs> it's a slightly different perspective. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. So we're we're really now into what I'd regard as the big three, um, and it's the same top three that I've got, but there's a, there's there's one change of order. But we've both got a number three. 
the Lotus 49. So, yes, why, why is that in there? What's the key thing for you on that one? Um, yeah, a lot of people, actually, the 49, I think, is their number one. Um, whenever, with our merchandising range and, and, and our um, the, the scale models, which we license, the 49 regularly um, surpasses the 72 and, and, and the 25. Yeah, it does impress me when that happens. It was all down to the engine, frankly, and my father played a pivotal role in getting in getting the Ford funding um, for for the Cosworth project. And of course, Keith Duckworth and Mike Costin had had worked at, at Lotus in the early days, um, and they were two genius engine builders who came up with the greatest racing engine there's ever been and, and ever will be for it to work first time out um and then go on to dominate in the way it did i think is more extraordinary really than than any of the cars um because a car actually compared to um the the ford cosworth dfe is pretty simple and straightforward um and my father was never really that much of an engine man um he he much preferred the the chassis and the aerodynamics um, and he loved it with the turbine in particular. I remember him saying, ah, oh, brilliant, the turbine, 1,000 hours, cheap as chips, and we haven't got to pay all that money to, to Cosworth for those bloody engine rebuilds. Um, so, um, um, the 49, um, it's just so elegant, isn't it? It's the cigar shape, and, and, and the, the, the chassis is, is designed around the profile of, of the engine. Certainly the brief was, let's make it simple, um, strong, and reliable while we sort out the engine. Obviously, there was a lot of sorting out to do with the engine, but, but you know, relatively speaking, not that much. Um, and um, you know, there, were, there were glorious moments when, when Jimmy and Graham um, were, were just miles ahead. Um, and then because it ran for so many seasons as well. Yeah, I mean, just to put some some stats to it, I mean, in 1967, uh, when the Lotus 49 came in for the Dutch Grand Prix, from that moment for the rest of the season, no other car took a pole position in the World Championship, and the the percentage advantage that Lotus 49 had over the opposition was almost as much as the FW14B Williams had in 92, which everyone remembers uh, as being a sort of big, big game changer as well. So that's how far ahead it was. It's actually the fastest F1 car not to win the World Championship in that particular year. It was so far ahead, but it had, had too many failures. Jim managed to get four wins out of it, which was actually more than anyone else, but didn't have a lot of other finishes. But of course, it made up for it. The following year, with Graham Hill taking the title, Lotus winning the constructors' title in really difficult circumstances after after Jim was uh, was killed in F two race, of course. But uh, the other thing is, is, am I right in saying that the original deal that Colin had with the F, the with Ford and DFE is that he should have had it for two years exclusively? But after sixty seven, it was it was so dominant that it, it was one of those occasions where the for the good of the sport, he sort of I'm sure he got a good deal out of it somewhere, but he actually allowed other teams to have it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was, you know, Ford um, said to Dad, look, you know, Formula One just isn't going to work if you're the only team with this engine. And, and Dad realised that. And I think he was, he was entirely confident that they were going to win anyway because um, they still had that advantage, you know, season advantage. So um, there's probably some financial consideration in there as well. Um, so, uh, yeah. And I, th- I think on the, the Pomeroy Index, the biggest ever step season to season, but of course, that had so much to do with 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 the engine um, 
uh, capacity change, um, although that had changed the previous year, hadn't it? But even so, the you know the DFV was was the reason for that. But but the greatest ever step change in performance, and then um, and then the car coping with with the introduction of, of wings. Um, so it went went through a very significant period of change in Formula One, um, and um, was was still racing in 1970, um, still winning a Grand Prix in 1970, four years on, and then Emerson doing his, his first three Grand Prix in the car as well. Um, so um, you know, tells tells a fantastic story. And of course, it was very handy that the 49C was still competitive in 1970 because the new wonder car, Colin's next uh, big uh, big move with the wedge shape, the radiators on the side, the Lotus 72, uh, which did, of course, go on to win more more championships than any other Formula One Lotus. Uh, it won three constructors, two drivers. Uh, but it wasn't an easy early, it wasn't an easy baptism for it, was it, in 1970? Yeah, um, so the 72... Following on from from the forty nine, I'm, I suppose. Where, whereas the forty nine was was something simple, as it were, um, the seventy two was was not. Um, it was ex- extremely complicated at the front end, in particular, um, the torsion bar suspension um, to provide rising rate, all with the idea of increasing, optimizing tire performance, which um, you know throughout motorsport history strapping on a pair of tires that can give you two seconds of that two seconds of lap advantage is the quickest way to make a formula one car go quicker um and um the 72 was able to make soft tires last a lot longer than anybody else that could give a real advantage but then it was never that far ahead of the opposition the 72 it really was, you know, hand-to-mouth um, or, or hand-to-hand combat almost. Um, you really never knew who was going to win which race. You never knew who was going to win the championship. And it could always have, have gone either way. But clearly the wedge shape was the, the thing about the 72 that everybody recognises. And um, it, um, it provided advantages in terms of the, um, the packaging of the radiators and... and um, um, the installation of, of, of the cooling system in, in general, reducing the drag, improving the airflow to the rear wing, um, suspension I mentioned previously. But it was a difficult car to run, and, and um, as, as Bob Dance pointed out, you know, the, the, the quicker we got, the harder we seemed to work. And the Lotus mechanics were always the last mechanics to leave. Um, and um, my father's job lists were, were always longer than anybody else's, and uh, he he would push the mechanics, you know, beyond their their, their levels of endurance at, at times. And, and there are tales of mechanics falling asleep on on, on the job and and being carried back to their hotel rooms. And um, you know, it really was 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 a major major challenge. Well, it's I mean, it's certainly true that to say that it wasn't a, a dominant force in the way that some of the other cars on this list. But as you, as I'm sure you know, Clive, obviously Autosport ran a we we had a series of podcasts last year where we argued for the various uh, great racing cars from different categories and they had a grand final. 
and it was the Lotus 72 that, that got our vote as the greatest competition car of all time for, for all those reasons you've talked about, for the 20 Grand Prix wins, for the five world championships, for setting the, the template, I think, of what a single-seater would look like. And also, I was just going to throw in there, I think you say it wore two of the greatest motorsport liveries of all time as well with Goldleaf and JPS. So it got it got my vote uh, as, as number one, but it, it only made number two for you. So let's talk about your, your number one choice, which is another one of those great great milestone Grand Prix cars and that is the the Lotus 25. Yeah I think um, it's such an elegant design and no real compromise in the design. Um, Simple in the way that as I was just saying the 72 actually isn't simple and represented an extreme change in design concept effectively did away with the space frame chassis um, and the fuel tanks, which which prior to that had been strapped to the space frame, basically jerry cans strapped to the space frame with bungee cords and wrapped around the driver and over his legs. And it was, they were just dreadful, dreadful things when you, when you look back at them. Um, suddenly the 25 was, was this car with a monocoque chassis, aviation spec, rubber fuel cells. I have heard quoted torsional stiffness six times greater. Um, certainly if you if you had a shunt, um, the cars those days just weren't designed to have shunts, but at least in the 25 there was a lot more strength. Um, 17% reduction in frontal area at a time when drag was, was king, really, um, pre, pre-ground effect. Um, and um, take the body off a 25 and it, and it really is the, the most beautiful thing. Um, so simple and elegant. And then you've got the Coventry Climax V8 engine in it and you fire it up and it's the most beautiful sound. Totally dominated Formula One, um, particularly in, in 63 and then, and then 65 and, and came close in 62 and 64. Um, Jimmy and my father, special relationship. Um, and um, it really represents what my father started in, in 47 with, with the Austin 7 through to, through to winning the championship in 63. What an incredible journey that was. It ticks all of the boxes. You know, I've, I've talked about the car being a monument to, to achievements and, and uh, representing in, another car representing innovation and, and um, another car because of the driver or what have you. But the 25 has just got everything. You know, it ticks all of the boxes. Um, and um, I think um, I would, I would, I'm, I'm going to, if I'm not sure what your number one is, Kevin. Was, Mine was the 72. I had the 25 in second. So we've just got the top two the other way around. So we'll put Basically, I need to just rehearse for the public debate of you and me <laughs> debating: should it be the twenty-five or the seventy-two? And I'm going to knock—I'm going to knock you out the park. So that's—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm very happy with the with the twenty-five, thirty. I mean, just to put some numbers to what you're saying. Uh, if you include the 33 along with the 25, um, which obviously was a, was a was a fairly direct development, two two drivers' titles, two constructors' titles, 19 world championship wins, and of course that was a day, uh, an era when there were lots of non-championship races, and it won some of those as well. Um, and of course, it, it won the Tasman title as well, right towards the end of its its career. Um, so fantastic, fantastic car. You could argue did more than any other single. 
model to forge the legend of Lotus, if you like. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they think Lotus, they do think, you know, Jimmy Clark, green green lotus yellow stripe and that of course that is the 25 or the 33 so yes i'm not going to um i mean having voted the 72 as the greatest competition car of all time i think we are going to stand by that but i'm also very happy to see the lotus 25 top this list and just as an aside when we had the test uh, at hethel i think you know everyone talks about the dfv being a fantastic sounding engine but one of the things i took away from that day was the climax v8 1500 cc uh, V8 engine sounded absolutely fantastic and uh, yes uh, it was another car that I would say goes up in your estimation when you see it in the flesh so if you haven't done so you should go to a historic event and see um, see a Lotus 25 particularly if it's driven by Andy Middlehurst um, which is the Lotus 25 as well isn't it Clive it's the car that did all the winning yeah yeah no, it's wonderful John Bowers um, an Australian um, enthusiast I think it's fair to say um, he's done a fantastic job at, at sending his car to all the events that Jimmy used to race at. You know, he, he says, well, you know, did, did the car go there in period? Yes, right, we're going there. And uh, what a great attitude. Um, and to see Andy winning for the seventh time at Goodwood Revival this year uh, with some real competition as well um, was uh, just a, such a lovely moment. And um, for, for the younger generation to see that, it's, uh, yeah what we're all about well thank you very much to clive chapman a fantastic uh, discussion there i hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it uh, as much as i did i hope clive hope you enjoyed your autosport podcast debut is that all right yeah no really good i'm impressed with your knowledge i've got to say kevin it's um i need to bone up on some of the stats um but uh, we just live with the cars day to day but um yeah, I need to, for our big debate about 25 versus 72, <laughs> I need to come up with some, some real figures, um, some specifics, as it were. But uh, yeah, very interesting and, and thought-provoking for me as well. Well, fantastic. And thank you for your insights and anecdotes. I think they really bring something to it. So yes, thanks very much uh, to Clive Chapman. And thank you very much to you, the listener. We'll be back soon with another Autosport Podcast. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Want to look and feel better together? Team up and lose weight with Nutrisystem's Partner Plan. Partners lose more weight doing it together, up to 20% more weight than doing it on their own. Get fully prepared breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks delivered right to your door. Delicious foods that are ready in minutes. Now featuring new Meals for Two. Double portion meals served up in one package and designed for weight loss. Quick to prepare and ready to share. Get Nutrisystem's Partner Plan and lose weight together. Now now with hearty inspirations dinners that control hunger for up to five hours exactly what you both need to feel full satisfied and energized as the weight comes off stop wasting money on diets that don't work and lose weight with nutrisystem's partner plan get started for as low as ten dollars a day go to nutrisystem.com meals right now and get a deal for two just go to nutrisystem.com meals expect to lose an average one to two pounds a week offer restrictions apply see website for details sports social podcast network
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.